Good evening. I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas in Search of Security. During the last 20 to 30 years, the scope of private security has expanded dramatically. In one section of downtown Toronto last year, nearly half the arrests were made not by the police, but by a private company. Most economic crime is dealt with by private investigators. In several Canadian cities, business improvement associations have hired private guards to patrol public streets. In fact, from shopping malls to airports to entertainment complexes, most of the places where most of the people spend most of their time are now privately policed. Criminologist Clifford Shearing has been a pioneer in bringing the rise of private policing to the attention of the academy and the public. He's also argued that this development has far-reaching implications for how we think about security and how we think about the state. In tonight's program, David Cayley explores the thought of Clifford Shearing. It's part three of a special 10-hour series called in search of security. Here's David Cayley. The distinction between the public and the private is often taken for granted, as if everything around us fit conveniently into one or the other of these boxes. In fact, many of the spaces in which people now live and work no longer fit this neat distinction. Shopping malls, airports, sports stadiums, residential estates and university campuses all in some way straddle this boundary. They are public places under private control and subject to private policing. Clifford Shearing calls them mass private property, a term he and his colleague Philip Stenning coined 20 years ago. They wanted to call attention to the fact that public order is now maintained by myriad private authorities as well as by the state. And they wanted to ask as well whether this mightn't, to a considerable extent, have been the case all along. Had the idea that public order is largely maintained by public police perhaps been overdrawn in the first place? Clifford Shearing was born in South Africa and then emigrated to Canada, where for many years he was professor at the University of Toronto's Centre of Criminology. Today, he directs a Centre for Justice and Security Studies at the Australian National University in Canberra. We met in Montreal at an international conference organized by the Law Commission of Canada. It was called In Search of Security and provided the starting point for this ideas series. When we spoke, he told me where his interest in private security had begun. Being a South African... I grew up in the apartheid era, and my first choice of career was to go farming. And at one point, within my first year as an apprentice farmer, I was not only fired from the farm, but I was told never to come back into the district. And the, the line was for inciting the natives to rebellion. And as I stood on this dusty road outside the farm with my bag waiting for the South African Railways bus, I really began to think that 
apartheid was not a state institution. It was run through all of these capillaries and that the farmers were critical to it and they were the supporters. So I began to be interested right then in a kind of illuminating moment in the dispersion of power and how power works in a dispersed way. And so I think that was the beginning and came into policing after I'd come to Canada to do a master's because I thought that in policing was a place where you see power operating. And it wasn't took me long to realize, well, everybody's focused as they were in apartheid on the state. But there's lots of other ways in which this power is exercised. And that initially got me looking at private security when very few other people were interested. I looked around and saw all these people that nobody was paying any attention to. Then I thought, I wonder how many of them are there? So I began to count the more obvious ones. And this is a, a large enterprise that nobody actually sees, although they take it into account all the time. By the time Clifford Shearing began to publish on this subject in the early 1980s, there were already more private security officers than public police in Canada. By 1996, according to the Law Commission's estimates, two-thirds of all security providers were employed privately. And this figure understates the number because it does not include forensic accountants, insurance investigators, or the many businesses that hire their own security, rather than relying on contractors. But counting, in any case, tells only a small part of the story, as Clifford Shearing discovered. Quite a long time ago now, almost two decades ago, I took a trip to Florida with my daughter, who was about 10 or 12, and a friend of hers. And we went to Disney World. I was quite reluctant to go and but did the parental thing and went to Disney World. And from the moment I walked in the place, I was so fascinated, given my interest in policing and security. I said, goodness me, here is an environment that is extraordinarily orderly and there's no public law enforcement presence at all. What does this mean to the statements of the police and everyone? Without police, there's great disorder. Take away the thin blue line and chaos reigns. It may not be perfect here, and we may not like the order, but orderly it is. And I began to think about this. And I saw, my goodness, Disney World has mobilized everyone and everything to produce order. Every Mickey Mouse, every Donald Duck has got a security function. Every visitor has a security function. You get on the monorail and they say, for your safety and comfort, would you please ensure that your children are away from the doors? When they put you on the platform, they say, how many in your party? They put you together as a party. So parents can look after their children. Oh, I thought, 
this is extraordinary. And then this wonderful incident occurred. My daughter had on a new pair of shoes. She got a blister on her heel. So I said, oh, take off your shoes. I'll carry them. She walked barefoot. She hadn't walked two meters. Then a person actually dressed as a Bahamian police officer came over and said, uh, would you mind putting on your shoes in your safety? It's just much safer. I said, actually, it's not safer for her to have her shoes on. It's a lot safer for her to have her shoes off. And then he said, well, then I'm afraid I'll have to escort you out of Disney World because we don't have people here without shoes on. So I said, well, that's fine with me. Let's leave. My daughter, of course, was uh, absolutely outraged, put her shoes on, spent the whole day walking, bloodied heel, didn't matter because there was a reward there for her to engage her in producing and co-producing the order of Disney World. It wasn't difficult to get her to do it. It was all fun. And I realized, here is the new model of security. And I thought of Michel Foucault's Panopticon, which is this tower which has gods in it and a ring of cells around and people in the tower can see everyone but they can't see the gods. I thought this is an even better panopticon. Everybody is looking on everybody else all the time including self-observation to make sure that you behave appropriately. So that gave me a whole new way of looking at policing of understanding private security and realizing that all the numbers people give you about private security don't mean a thing because private security is not like the state police. It's not primarily made up of specialized people with a security occupation. If you were to count private security at Disney World, you would get a very low number because you wouldn't count the Mickey Mouse, the Donald Duck, the gardener carefully making sure that there are patches that you're not going to walk on because they're beautiful roses. You wouldn't count all of these people because security has become embedded in a host of functions. So most of the discussion at the conference is private security bigger or smaller than the public police is like counting apples and oranges. The one is a set of specialized functions, more or less exclusively. The other is a set of dispersed functions. Had a wonderful interview with the security director soon after that of a large Canadian clothing chain. And I was interested in finding out about private security and he was the director of security. And I remember interviewing him and I can't remember the exact numbers, but I asked how large is your budget? And he gave me uh, a very large number, more than one million. He said, how many employees? Two, he says. Two? 
You've got a budget of over a million. You've got two employees. I'm used to thinking of police organizations where 85% of the budget goes into employees. I said, yes, there's me and my assistant. I said, what do you spend your money on? You must earn wonderful salaries. He said, you misunderstand. Our budget is spent on coordinating the work of employees throughout this company to contribute to the security function. So if you'd come to this company and counted private security, you'd said two. But nothing could have been further from the truth. You might as well have counted every employee. That would have been as sensible a thing to do as counting two. Clifford Shearing's visit to Disney World and to the clothing chain made him aware that he was dealing with something that went far beyond the growing number of people in blazers marked Securicor or Securitas. Security was no longer just a function of the state or even of private providers, but had become a built-in feature of many contemporary systems, subtle, dispersed, pervasive, and amazingly effective. In one sense, this was something strikingly new. Disney World's particular way of seducing people into co-producing their own order certainly has no precedent. But Shearing recognized another sense in which it was not new at all. A colleague of mine who I work with, Les Johnson, wrote a book some years ago with the title The Rebirth of Private Security. And I think that captures that, that for a very short while, the state monopolized most governance, or we thought about it as monopolizing it. And it's only been a very short period of history, little more than 150 years, when this has happened. But we grew up in an age where we took this for granted. This is what the way the world was this monopoly by experts who work on taxpayers' money to deal with all the problems of governance. Of course, if you look back, it wasn't that long ago, just the 1800s, uh, where this wasn't true. People had to organize their own street cleaning and their own garbage collection and their own security, etc. And so we moved into this period, which I often call, it's just a hiccup in history. This is nothing that we should think of as permanent. So we're returning to a point where governance was a multi-agency, a multi-capacity affair. Not that it ever really changed, but our picture of it changed. We drew pictures of the way we police and govern that only had what I call big G governments in it. Not that these other things weren't still going on, they were to a lesser extent, but governments were claiming, with our support, a monopoly of these functions. And so we chose not to see these other things. Just as I said earlier, there, when I began to look at this issue, there were lots of security guards around, but nobody saw them. Because no one saw them, private security was not generally taken into account in the theories of criminologists. Studies of policing concentrated, by and large, on how public police enforce criminal law. Shearing 
called for a new approach, which not only acknowledged the prevalence of private security, but also recognized that a simple either-or distinction between the public and the private is no longer adequate, and perhaps never was. We talk a lot about the public-private distinction, and like many of our concepts, it is a concept that has to do with a particular moment in history, a moment when we thought about public goods, public interests, as provided by public bureaucracies. And we thought about private goods and private interests as things which were done independently of them. We began to divide spaces into two kinds. Public spaces, which were spaces for everybody, and then more limited spaces for very small groups and individuals. We've seen a series of things happen, particularly around space, where we now have collective spaces which are privately owned, but to which the public often has a, a relatively open invitation to attend. We're in Montreal at the moment, and I was hearing the other day that the various corridors and malls beneath the buildings here, that they're 400 kilometers of essentially privately owned streets and walkways beneath the buildings. This is where the people of Montreal spend a lot of their time, but it's private property. You are there by invitation. So if you ask the question, is this private space or is this public space? It's not as simple as it was because the issue of access and the issue of ownership have moved out of whack. They no longer correlated. And so we began to talk about quasi-public spaces and quasi-private spaces and hybrid spaces. And I began to think with others that these actually just don't solve the problem. They point to the problem that this public-private distinction, this either public or private, simply is not conceptually rich enough to capture the forms of life in which we live. And what we do is we try and force the world into this very narrow bed of concepts, Procustean bed. And so one of the things that I and others have been arguing is that we begin to make a distinction between common and public. And we draw back to the medieval notion of a commons. A village commons was not open to everyone uh, in the kingdom. It was common to the members of the village. And so it was not what we would think of today as a public space, although it was a common space. Common to some, but not common to all. And one way of refiguring the public-private distinction in the various ways in which it is used is to move from thinking of it as a binary, as an on-off switch. It's either this or it's that to a continuum. At the one end you have a private space which is 
has very restricted access. At the other end, you have a public space to which all members of a state who are citizens have access. But there may be spaces in between that are common to some, but not common to all. This would may also apply to the notion of interests. There are some interests that may be shared by everyone within a state, every citizen. There are, at the other extreme, private interests that very few people share. But there's a middle space in this continuum of common interests that depend on various things. It could be gender, it could be age, it could be territory in which you live in, it could be occupation. So we began to refigure the public-private distinction into a public-common-private continuum. In Clifford Shearing's view, recognizing a middle term between public and private would permit a much more pertinent and nuanced analysis of what is going on in our world, and of policing in particular. Another criminologist who agrees with him on this point is Adam Crawford of the University of Leeds. He's also been thinking about the overlapping of public and private, and he's come up with the idea that between private goods and public goods, there also exists an intermediate realm of what he calls club goods. If you actually look at a lot of what is happening in terms of policing, but also in terms of changes in other areas of what we might traditionally have seen as a public provision, is that what we take for granted as maybe being a public good may not actually be so public, that it may be public goods may be captured by local or parochial interests within particular areas, the way in which certain people benefit much more from what may be a public good than do others. So that, you know, the recent history of policing has been that those who, because it's very responsive service, those who demand it tend to get the police to come. And different people have different capacities to demand. Uh, one of the interesting, and in some senses for some, the perverse experience in the 1980s of neighbourhood watch schemes in Britain was that, and this is true in North America as well as far as I understand, that neighbourhood watches were easier to set up in, in places where crime was low. Now, that may be one thing. You can say, well, they were being set up in the wrong places so that there was an inverse relationship between activity and need. But what made that even more perverse in some senses was that neighbourhood watches, rather than relieving the police of activity, actually required the police to uh, spend time maintaining them because they had to go and kind of, they weren't easy to maintain. So the police had to keep the neighbourhood watches going. And they also became a kind of a, a hotline that the lo those local communities had to the police through the neighbourhood watch. So what you actually per perversely got was kind of a skewing of resources into precisely those areas which didn't need them in terms of a mere crime and risk basis and potentially therefore away from, from areas which may have been higher crime areas in terms of risk. So what we have is, I think, and, and, and the notion of, of, of a club good is it tries to do two things. One, it suggests that what we may perceive to be public good may in part be captured by private interests, but also that some of the things that the private police do actually has a public character as well. So it's about the publicness of private policing as well as the privateness of public policing. To give you an example in a very different context is, is in an educational context in Britain, whereby local schools 
identified as good schools and bad schools within areas and they filter very very clearly into house prices and the only way you can get into school a school is by living within a catchment area of a school now school education is a public good but what you have is a public good a good school being captured by those who can afford to live near that school and schools are excludable because they can't take everybody so rather like um, local schools which provide a club good to those who live nearby forms of policing similarly can provide uh, direct benefits to those who can capture or, or or use their services more acutely Adam Crawford's club goods seems very close to Clifford Shearing's commons. And hearing them explain it, the idea can seem almost commonsensical. Who doesn't know that the most expensive neighborhoods have the best public schools, or that shopping malls and hockey arenas are public places? Well, the law, for one. The law still considers a shopping mall as much a private place as your home. Political discussion is also frequently confused by the bluntness of the public-private distinction. Public is trumps for the left, private for the right, while what is really going on often remains obscure. But if it is recognized that public can be private and private public, different questions arise. The formal questions, who does it, who owns it, become less important than the substantive questions. What actually happens? Who benefits? These substantive questions are the ones Clifford Shearing has tried to raise. Private security, he says, should not be categorically praised or condemned, but instead be judged by its effects. On the one hand, it has enhanced the capacity of certain collectivities and populations to direct their own affairs. If you are live in a gated community and a part of the management committee, you can decide when your garbage is going to be collected, how clean your streets will be, whether RV vehicles can park on lawns or whatever. And so there's more autonomy, there's more self-direction. You're much more closely in, in control of things. And you might be able to enhance goods that are public goods. You might be able to reduce the likelihood of crime in your area through hiring foot patrols, etc. This has all happened, and at that level it's all good. But it's also created enormous inequality because this has been more available to the people within the gated communities than to the people without. And so the access to, in a sense, to the goods of governance has become increasingly unevenly distributed. There's no problem that this group has reduced crime rates and that they're using their own resources to promote that. It becomes a problem if the area next door is not able to do the same and if the government said, well, seeing so much of this is happening, we can spend less on these issues. So you get this inequality. And we've talked about a governance deficit or a security deficit or even a democratic deficit, as the state has often become less willing to do these things. So people with sufficient resources have become more willing to do it. 
This happens to be correlated with wealth. The poorer you are, the less public goods you get and common goods you get, the richer you are, the more you get. So this has created very important and very difficult ethical and moral and policy questions. The critical problem, Clifford Shearing says, is not private security as such, but unequal access to security. The solution, in his view, is to find ways in which poorer communities can use their own wits to secure their own peace and good order. He first began to test this approach in 1986, when he was invited to put his ideas into practice by former Toronto Mayor John Sewell. Sewell had just been appointed chairman of the Metropolitan Toronto Housing Authority, the MTHA, responsible for 32,000 units of low-cost housing in various public housing projects around the city. Together with several of Shearing's colleagues, they devised a plan. We began a project at MTHA with several pilot sites, and the premise of the project was that the people who knew most about solving security issues were not the staff or the security guard, but were the people who lived in those projects. And so uh, we began a series of pilots, and our, our thrust at the time was how can we get the knowledge and capacity of people involved? And we met with tenants, and we met with management staff, and we met with housing staff, formed little groups. And I don't need to go into the detail, but the end result was that there was a, a significant change in the way security took place. And a key component of this was getting a security budget. Up until then, and it's true generally now in our communities, security belonged to the security company that MTHA hired, just as policing belongs to police departments. And the security company owned all the money for security. So if you had a security problem, you only had one option, which was to go to the security company and say, can you solve this problem? Of course, they were organized with very limited number of capacities. They had people who patrolled and people who did this and people who did that, but a very limited number of things. In exactly the same way with the police. They have their capacities. They have guns and uh, handcuffs and sticks and cars. And if you can solve the problem with those things, they are very useful. But the trouble is they're the only people you can ask. So we said, I said to John, what we need is a security budget that is not assigned to anyone. So when we come up with a plan, we can go about and do something. Diverting part of the security budget freed resources with which the staff and the tenants could address outstanding problems in the three projects selected for the pilot. And addressing concrete problems proved to be the key to security. One of the things we did in Toronto Housing, there was one of the issues that the staff were worried about, the tenants were worried about, was the fact that there was garbage everywhere. 
and this was creating a, an environment that they felt was attracting undesirable elements, this, that, and the other thing. And what would tend to happen when it happened on the garbage issue was that the management would decide to hold a meeting, a tenant meeting, send out flyers, everyone come over, tenant meeting on garbage. Everyone was interested in garbage, it was a problem. And then they would say they wanted to find out what people thought. So they would say, we have a garbage problem, this and the other. Any good ideas? Wait a few seconds. No one's saying anything? Whisper to each other. Typical tenants, not an idea in their heads. Okay, we'll come back to you once we have an idea and see what can be done. One of the things we did was to ask the question, who takes out the garbage in most families? The answer was children. So we said, let's get the children together. Let's find out something about the garbage process. Children came together. We said, why is the garbage, why is this place so messy? Because we throw the garbage bags all over the place on our way to school. And why on your way to school? Because our parents tell us to take the garbage out on the way to school. Why do you throw them around all over the place? Well, because the garbage cans are in the west and our school is in the east. So there's no way we are going to go west to go east. So we find a way of dumping the garbage somewhere. So we said, what would you do to solve this problem? Well, I said, can't move the school easily, but we can move the garbage cans. So we simply moved the garbage cans from the west to the east, and all of a sudden the garbage problem was solved. Uh, just a, a nice little illustration of uh, local knowledge and capacity, but usually it's not mobilized. Or, as we saw in this story, the procedures that supposedly are designed to mobilize it are actually mobilized by professionals to show how really they know more. Deprofessionalizing security and empowering tenants proved successful. Crime and disorder decreased, conditions improved. But after his first two-year term as chair of the MTHA, John Sewell was not reappointed for unrelated political reasons, and the project was not followed up. Clifford Shearing would continue in other settings to build on the idea that local knowledge and capacity are the key to governing security. He's currently involved in a much larger project in South Africa in which neighborhood peace committees take responsibility for security. But that's a longer story, which I'll have to leave for a later program in this series. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1. I'm Paul Kennedy. Tonight we're presenting a profile of criminologist Clifford Shearing. It's part three of a special 10-hour series by David Cayley called In Search of Security. During the last few years, private security has begun to visibly encroach on the functions of the public police. 
In Vancouver's Gastown, for example, the Business Improvement Association hires a private company to patrol public streets. One of the effects of this encroachment has been to change the way policing is understood. Clifford Shearing and his colleague Philip Stenning were among the first to point this out. Police, they wrote back in 1987, are no longer simply large men in somber uniforms who run around trying to catch criminals. Private security is not generally about catching and punishing lawbreakers at all. It's about maintaining order by preventing unwanted acts from occurring. And this was, in fact, the original purpose of the public police as well, Clifford Shearing says. He bases his point on his reading of English police history. In England, during the early 19th century, various reformers argued for the establishment of a London police force and were rewarded when Sir Robert Peel created the Metropolitan Police in 1829. In a sense, the public police are a spectacular failure. The idea behind the public police was they were responding to the inadequacy of private provision of security. And the police reformers, people like Chadwick and others and Harrison, were very impressed with the private security arrangements that were in the harbour areas of the Thames, called the Thames Police, where businesses had created their own policing. And it was designed to reduce losses from stevedoring and all of those other issues around the warehouses and the loading that took place at the Thames. And this impressed people in police reformers, and they essentially said, don't you think it's a good idea that we could do the same kind of thing in London? And they began to look at how it worked, and they said, well, the, why it works so well is they've been able to create what one historian called an unremitting watch. So the idea was if we could create an unremitting watch in London we would be able to resolve the insecurity problems. So the idea was, well, government can do this. Why don't we get government into the business of creating this unremitting watch? And then they thought, well, how do we create an unremitting watch? Well, what we'll do is we'll divide London into little squares, as if we had a piece of graph paper that we used to use at school. We'll divide it into squares. And we'll put a police officer in each of these squares, and they will be able to watch over the whole square. And this was the whole idea of Peel, that you would have an unremitting watch which would create a strategy which was entirely preventative. That's why early on they didn't even have any um, criminal investigators, because they wouldn't need them, because you were going to prevent everything through your unremitting watch. Now, of course, the big difference between the Thames Police, and this resonates with our present day, and London, was the Thames area was all private property. So the police there could wander anywhere. They could go into the warehouses, they could go everywhere, and they could actually have a look at what was going on everywhere. 
The police found themselves in their little square, but they only had access to the public streets. Everything that was interesting going on from their point of view would be taking place in private areas behind closed doors where they didn't have access. So the idea of an unremitting watch simply couldn't be realized. So the next idea was, well, we will then try and get victims to tell us when something is going on in these private places so that we can go and have a look, which made the police into a reactive after-the-fact organization, not what it was intended to be, a before-the-fact preventive organization. So the dream of a preventative force was a complete failure. And in a sense, ever since, the police have been looking for ways to respond to this difficulty they face of being stuck on public property, where all the action is taking place on private property. What Clifford Shearing calls the dream of a preventive force is clearly set out in the Statement of Principles, which Sir Robert Peel put before Parliament in 1829, when he introduced the legislation to create the Metropolitan Police. All the emphasis is on prevention, persuasion, and public consent. No mention is made of the pursuit and punishment of offenders. But that was what the police had to fall back on when their original purpose could not be realized. And bandit catching, as Clifford Shearing calls this approach, then posed new quandaries. After you've caught these bandits, you uh, have to find some way of dealing with them in order to realize your preventative function. And here we had the whole idea that deterrence would be the way in which they would return to the preventative aim. So that although they would be catching people after some harm had been done, by treating these people in a way that would deter either specifically that this particular person wouldn't reenact something like this and general deterrence where they'd become an example to others, you would be able to return to a preventative objective through deterrence. And deterrence was understood through punishment. So prevention became a matter of applying punishment effectively to deter. And it's in part how the punishment paradigm emerged. Another aspect or feature of the punishment paradigm is that when wrongdoing has taken place, there is often a desire for some expressive response to this of, um, of either retribution or censure. And so it turned out that you could use punishment to do both of these things. So you got a kind of a nice tight coupling between doing justice, which was the expressive response to that particular wrongdoer, and a preventative or instrumental response. So you could use the same action, punishment, to respond to both of these objectives. So it became a very parsimonious and simple way of doing it. Of course, the difficulty from a preventative point of view is that while deterrence works, the conditions 
under which it works are very strict. It will work if you catch most of the people most of the time and are able to sanction them most of the time. Well, as we all know from clearance rates, you catch a few of the people only some of the time. So deterrence, although we, we kept trying for a long time, hasn't proved to be a particularly good preventative device. So now where we have multiple providers of security, prevention has, in a sense, re-emerged as if I want to put it this way, as the Thames police have become multiplied through private security and mass private property. Prevention has re-emerged, Clifford Shearing argues, but not necessarily as a feasible objective for public police. They remain in the bind he has described. Deterrence doesn't work, and an unremitting watch is both impossible and undesirable in public space. What this suggests to Clifford Shearing is that it's time to stop identifying security with the police as an institution. That's why the title of his new book does not refer to policing at all, but to what he and his co-author Les Johnson call governing security. The reason for talking about the governance of security is to shift the emphasis in our language and our thinking from a set of institutions for doing something to the functions that they do. So we have been through a phase where we think of the activity of regulation, what I'd call now governance, as being owned by a series of institutions. And we, we've turned out tension away from the functions. I think an easy way to illustrate this is that we have budgets for the police, but we don't have budgets for security. So when I was um, looking for how to police the South African elections and was over in Australia, and I interviewed a police officer who was responsible for the policing of demonstrations in a particular part of Victoria where they had motorcycle races and car races. And he said to me, Clifford, what I need to manage these mass events are hot dog stands, toilets, and rock bands. And then in a kind of nice exaggeration, he said, but... I've only got money for guns and tanks. And so this is the difference between moving from a focus on institutions and their capacities to looking, making your principal focus the functions that need to be accomplished and then looking wherever to find the knowledge and capacity to meet these functions. So hence the governance of security is about that, whereas when we think about policing still, we still relate this to the police and say, what can the police do to achieve this? Clifford Shearing's distinction between function and institution has broad application. It allows one to pry apart schooling and education, or medicine and health, as much as security and policing. 
unmanageably general problems can then be broken down. The police, for example, will speak about the crime problem as their reason for being. But the crime problem actually comprises scores of quite different predicaments, many of them beyond the specific competence of the police. Security, in Clifford Shearing's view, has many sources. Mariana Valverde agrees. She's a professor at the University of Toronto Centre of Criminology, where she and Shearing were colleagues for many years. Her current research focuses on how cities achieve and maintain their order. It's a process, she says, that goes far beyond the activities of the police, whether public or private. I think it's maybe a mistake to focus so much on the public police on the one hand and private security on the other, because then what you don't see so much is how policing as order maintenance is being carried out all the time by all sorts of agencies. I mean, you go to a school and you have lunchroom supervisors. Well, you don't have many of them now because of the cutbacks, but you used to have a lot more of them. They certainly had a policing function. Now, why is a lunchroom supervisor who isn't just making sure the kids don't throw the garbage on the floor, he or she is also making sure the kids don't engage in racist name-calling, for instance. Well, why isn't that, you know, policing? So I think that governance is something everyone is involved in. If you criticize your neighbors because they're not raking the leaves on their lawn, you're engaged in the governance of the street and the governance of the aesthetics of the street. So, you know, governance is going on all the time. And I think it's better to start with a particular problem, like dirty streets or unsightly parks or nasty behavior at schools, and then see how that behavior is governed without having a lot of presuppositions about saying, oh, I'm studying the relationship between private security and public police. Well, that's already prejudging the issue. You're only studying these two agencies. Well, maybe there's all sorts of other people involved and you're not studying them. So I'm all for being more creative in how we design our studies. To start with a concrete problem and not have this pre-cooked idea that the issue today is the relationship between the police and private security. Well, it's an important issue, but that's only part of the picture. Mariana Valverde's injunction to start with the question rather than with the institution seems to me to come close to what Clifford Shearing is saying as well. Shearing is widely known as one of the handful of scholars who put private security on the academic map. But I don't think this means that he is primarily interested in private security as an institution, nor does he see it as something inherently good or bad. Private security, for him, represents a break in the monopolistic power of the police to define and produce public safety. It provides an opening, an invitation to think about all the ways in which order can be maintained. How security is to be governed can then be posed as a genuine question without a prejudged a priori answer waiting in the wings. Some critics find this worrying. They see the state and its agencies as the only way of coordinating public interests and guaranteeing a hearing for the public good. Clifford Shearing certainly doesn't dismiss these concerns, but he does think we need to go beyond what Mariana Valverde nicely calls 
pre-cooked ideas. A new world, Shearing says finally, demands a new way of thinking. We build our theories and our concepts around particular states of affairs at some particular time and space, usually our contemporary time and space or one that immediately preceded it. And then we universalize this. This makes it very difficult for us to even recognize change and even more difficult for us to describe it and explain it. So one of the things we have to do now as these changes take place, and the world always changes ahead of our our concepts and our theories, we're always engaged in catch-up. So uh, we're engaged in this process of catch-up at the moment of trying to develop concepts that allow us to make sense of and describe and then explain what is going on. On Ideas Tonight, you've listened to part three of In Search of Security by David Cayley. Our 10-hour series continues tomorrow night with a program about contemporary changes in public policing. The series was inspired by an international conference organized by the Law Commission of Canada. Our thanks to the Commission and to its Director of Research, Dennis Cooley. Production tonight was by Dave Field. Richard Handler was the editorial consultant. Liz Nage was the associate producer. A transcript of the series is available for $25. Tapes or CDs of the 10 programs cost $75. Write to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Email us at ideas at cbc.ca or call 416-205-7367 and order by credit card. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht and I'm Paul Kennedy. News follows, then the arts today and between the covers.